Hey guys, it's Nathan. This is episode number 72 of The Nathan Seward Show. The Nathan Seward Show, inspiring you to live an extraordinary life. And welcome to the show. How are you doing? Hope you're having a great week. Oh, having a good week, man. I'm in Queenstown, which if you're not from New Zealand, it's in the South Island of the New Zealand, which is... Uh, way down at the bottom of the country and it's in the mountains and it's next to a lake and I've been coming here since I was four years old every January the same place for 30 years and feels like home feels like a second home to me so I'm feeling very relaxed and very happy to be here yeah, it's been a good week man it's been a really good week I had uh, a call with my game changer community called uh, it's the extraordinary life community we hung out on Thursday yesterday and we had a really really great conversation. Uh, we talked about mission and the mission that everyone was on. Everybody in the community got a chance to share their mission. And, man, it was powerful because everybody uh, in that community is working on a mission that's impacting people on the planet in new ways. And as a community, as a group, we're able to work on all those missions together. So you have the power of the whole community working on your mission, which is really, really cool. And it was very moving, you know, when you talk about people's mission, people's life purpose, what they believe they were here to do, then they, uh, they get quite emotional. I got quite emotional. And that was nice. I felt moved by, by that and being with uh, all those incredible people in my community. So I'm feeling good this week and I'm feeling empowered and I'm feeling like uh, we're on a good path and we're all making a difference. Uh, I want to welcome you all here. Joe's up past her bedtime, which I appreciate. Joe, you're going to feel that tomorrow, but hopefully it'll be worth it. Ben. It is a tidy house. <laughs> yeah, I, I was staying here with my family and they all left this morning and gave it a bit of a tidy up, so I don't want to take credit for that. Who else is here? Hello, Holly. Uh, and hello, Susan. Welcome, everyone. So, yeah, feel free to ask questions. Feel free to uh, make comments as we go. And if you're watching this on the replay, the best thing you can do is just uh, give it a like or give it a share or leave a comment. Uh, you don't have to be just watching this live uh, podcast with us now. So if you're watching the replay, feel free to still comment or like, give it a share so we know you're here. And that'll be nice. That'll be nice for me. That will let me know that you're here. Let me know that this is worthwhile. And I appreciate hearing from all of you. So let's dive in. A couple of good topics today. Thank you, Ben, for sharing some great questions. He sent me a message last week, which was, uh, you know, he put a lot of thought into that. And I appreciate that. Uh, same with Susan and uh, Holly and also Joe. And let's dive in. So Ben asked a great question and he said, how do good coaches choose their own coach? So I'm interested in this for you. If you're working with a coach at the moment, how did you choose your coach? I don't know about good coaches, but I can explain how I chose my coach. And yeah, it's a very, very good question. It's an interesting process. A couple of things that come up for me is as coaches, we can become a little bit more slippery, a little bit more slippery. <laughs> which means that the more we know and the more experience we get working with other people, the more we can tend to think that we are above the work or because we know a lot about personal development and not about coaching that uh, maybe we, you know, we don't need the work ourselves or, you know, we just become a little bit slippery. So my belief is that the more experienced, the better you become as a coach. You really need a coach that can, that knows how to coach coaches. It reminds me of uh, Brene Brown tells a story about uh, when she went into therapy for the first time and she realized that, well, she said to the therapist, look, I don't want to do any of that family shit. 
I don't want to go into my childhood. I don't want to talk about my parents. You know, I've got this issue, this issue, and this issue. So let's just knock them off quickly and uh, and get on with it. And the therapist just looked at her and laughed. And Brene just said, it's bad, isn't it? And she said, yeah, this might take a bit longer than you first anticipated. And so the reason I tell you that is because as we become more experienced in this work in this work around coaching we can sometimes become a little bit slippery and think that we're above the work or because we know a lot about it that we don't have to do our own work and it can become a little bit more challenging to be coached as a coach we just become a little bit slippery Uh, so the way I choose my coach is I went to somebody that knows me really well and somebody that also knows a lot of good coaches and I said look you know me better than anyone and based on that can you make some recommendations of some coaches and he was a person that I admired a lot, was in touch with a lot of great coaches that coach coaches. And he gave me three or four coaches to go and talk to. Now, here's another temptation. And you might recognize this in yourself. You go, well, for me, I'm my mid-30s, early 30s, <laughs> no, mid-30s. And uh, I'm gay. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm an Enneagram 7. I've got all these labels for myself. And so I want to find a coach that understands all my labels. And that makes sense, right? You want to work with somebody that's like you, that understands you, and that can help someone like you. As someone that's a little bit more experienced in coaching, I want to go the opposite. I don't want to be coached by somebody that's going to buy into all my stories that I already have. You know, if I say, oh, you know, it's really hard being gay. It's so hard to find, uh, you know, professional gay men that are, uh, blah, 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 whatever. And then somebody on the other side that's gay and is also enrolled in that story because he's gay and he's been through that. He'll go, oh, yeah, I totally understand it. Yeah, it's really you know tough, isn't it? You know, Let's find a way to try and work through that. So because he's like you, there's a temptation that he can buy into your story a little bit easier. So I, I went for my coach at the moment is completely different from me. She's a woman. She's uh, a little bit older than me has not got that adventurous a life, I would suggest. And so there isn't the temptation to buy into all what I believe is the truth, what I believe is the truth about my life. And the second thing is you get more experience as a coach, or let me say, you know, when you have a little bit less experience and you're hiring a coach, you think that the coach or the better the coach is, the more they know, that's going to help you more. So if I could say that another way, you might think that all the power is with the coach. They have all the power. They've got the secret ingredients to just what I need. You know, I've had all these struggles for so long. And if I could just get the juice out of that coach, get the, the whatever the golden nuggets are they have, then that will be the answer to all my problems. So we can tend to buy into this idea of like, you know, that's why Tony Robbins called his documentary, I'm Not Your Guru. He's trying to remove himself from that. He's trying to say, I'm not a guru. I don't know more than you. I don't have the power because he knows that people have a tendency to think that Tony has the answers. Tony has the power. If I could just spend more time with Tony, if I could just listen to Tony, if I just, you know, got into Tony's space a bit more, then my life would shift. So again, as a slightly more experienced coach, I want to do the opposite of that. I don't want to buy into that story. I don't want to think that my coach has all the answers. And for me, there's no requirement for me to believe in my coach. There's no requirement for me to believe in her. So when I hired my coach, I actually know nothing about her. I know what her name is. I know what city she lives in. A couple of things she might have mentioned on calls and passing, I could tell you. 
but I really don't know anything about her and I don't really care because I know the power is not with her. Her story and what she's going through and what she's doing has nothing to do with me. I want her to coach me powerfully and remind me that I have the power and remind me that the answers are within me and mirror things back to me. So I'm looking for a powerful coach, not for someone that has the answers. Does that make sense? Let me know in the comments. Uh, Susan, coaches need to challenge. Uh, coaches need to challenge. Elaborate on that a little bit for me. I'm not quite sure what that means. Uh, Joe, I uh, love the fact you chose a coach unlike you. I never thought of it like that. It makes so much sense in terms of buying into stories. Yeah. And look, this isn't the truth. This is, I'm just giving you my perspective on what I was looking for in my last coach. And one of the things that came up for me was that finding a coach that wasn't like me. And it's amazing. You know, I think we're, with my current coach, we're four months in. And between three and five months, they call the quitting zone in coaching, the quitting zone. Why is that? Because for a lot of the reasons I've just said, we think that coaching is going to be the answer to all our problems. And after about three months, we kind of realize, oh, I'm having these conversations with my coach and it's interesting and uh, I've got some insights, but my life's not really changing that radically. I don't, I don't think it's working. I don't think this coach thing is working. Maybe my coach is not powerful enough to coach me. Maybe I'm not, you know, maybe I'm just difficult or maybe I need a different coach or maybe I should have gone with that online program instead of hiring a coach because it's a bit cheaper and I don't feel like this is working. And so we call the three to five month mark the quitting zone because that's the temptation when people think, oh, it's time for me to uh, review this because it doesn't feel like it's working. But what we don't realize is that's the opportunity for the most growth. So that's the opportunity where if we start having that conversation around, why is it not working? Why do I feel it's not working? What am I struggling with? What's missing? You know, it's, it's that temptation when it feels hard, when it's getting challenging, when we feel like quitting, when we're not sure if it's working, that's when the work starts. So, you know, for a lot of people, three to five months is the time they tap out because they feel it's not working. But for those that choose to stay in it and keep bringing those conversations to their coach, that's where the work can start to begin and that's where the biggest breakthroughs can change because that's where you're actually going to shift your way of being. That's where you're going to change for the first time. That's when you're going to look at new perspectives. That's when you're going to take on new ways of being and try and find some breakthroughs. Ben, thank you for the question. Is it tempting to hire a more expensive coach than you? Uh, that's personal. That's personal. So it's up to you uh, about that. Some people uh, make the argument that to be in integrity with your own fees you want to take on a, a coach that's more expensive than you do I believe that I don't believe that I'm, I'm looking for the the coach for me so you know when I asked my my friend who I trust a lot which coach do you recommend for me I started talking to to my coach who I eventually hired she told me the price I agreed and we we carried on uh, she was cheaper than me it still felt like a lot of money you know so that was I still had to go through the the cost you know, conversation with myself. So yeah, I think that's personal. You know, if you if you buy into the integrity thing, that would be true. You know, I spent my last coach that I had before that was really expensive. I think uh, you know, I might have paid forty thousand or something for six months or something like that. So I've done it before. So I, you know, I don't. The integrity thing's not so important to me. I'm more. I've invested that money in myself before, so I don't feel like I have to do that again. So this question is about spirituality and my own spirituality and I've never really talked much about this before so this might be a little bit messy 
as I go through this conversation. So just bear with me uh, because so often spirituality is something that's very personal and very intimate So, uh, and it's very internal. So if I struggle to articulate some of this, bear with me. What's spirituality to you? What's your definition of spirituality? If we look at the, the straight definition of spirituality, it's just that which is uh, concerned with the spirit. So if we have you know, the physical world, so that which is concerned with the body and everything we can see, then spirituality is that which is, deals with what we can't see. That's the basic definition. But what is spirituality for me? I heard a story recently that said uh, of all the astronauts that went to the moon, they all came back and discovered spirituality or religion because when they were out there in space, there was more questions than there was answers. And a lot of them turned to spirituality when they returned. And that's interesting. You know, some of the most hardcore scientists in the world, NASA astronauts, turning to spirituality for answers. So that's where I look as well. And as I go through, I'm not trying to convince you of anything. So don't think this is the right answer. I'm just sharing what's there for me. And for me, spirituality is, is the knowledge that there is more out there than we can probably ever know or understand. And possibly that if even we were to know or understand it, it would still be too much to, to comprehend or, you know, like a tree or a, a fish is not trying to figure out everything. They're not trying to figure out how to measure everything and find scientific answers. They're just being. And so, you know, spirituality for me is really, it's about how do I comprehend that which is bigger than me or that which I don't understand. And, you know, through meditation and through plant medicine and just through reading and, you know, having conversations, a lot of the spiritual concepts make sense to me. Wayne Dyer has been a great teacher of mine for a long time. And Wayne, he always believed his, his mission was to make spirituality accessible for what he called the taxi drivers and the bus drivers. You know, spirituality for people not that didn't have to go to a temple. You know, this didn't feel like this big woo-woo Eastern philosophy. But how could you make it real for the man in the street? so that he could apply that philosophy and that spirituality into his day-to-day life. And so I love Wayne's take because he comes at things very simply. He makes it easy to digest. I use the word the universe. You know, it's, it's kind of overused now, but it, it, uh, it resonates for me. And when I talk about the universe, I'm talking about, you know, something bigger that's at play, whatever that bigger thing that is at play behind everything, whether it's scientific or godlike or whatever, it doesn't bother me. But whatever that bigger thing is, that is at play. And I notice that when I'm collaborating with the universe, that life works for me. So it's about life being, you know, it's, it's two things. It's about my life working and it's about me feeling empowered. So it's not about the truth. It's not about the science. It's not about being right. It's about what is, what is empowering for me. And one of the most empowering beliefs I've ever given myself or I've ever installed is that everything that happens to me is for my highest good. So the universe is always trying to bring me towards my highest purpose, my highest mission, my, my dharma, my, my highest self. And when I trust that, when I give myself over to the universe, when I can surrender and say, hey, I accept that everything that happens to me is for my highest gain, my highest purpose, bring me towards my highest self. 
that is an empowering belief for me. Is it the truth? I don't know. I don't care. It's empowering for me. So I'm going to stick with it. And when I feel into that, it feels really good. And I've gone places where I've gone too spiritual. I see Toku's here. Toku lived in a Zen monastery, right? So he went to the limits of spirituality. And I think a lot of the times we can forget how to be human. Ram Das is an amazing teacher as well. And I was reading a quote from Ram Das today that said he had to come back into the human world and he had to learn how to be human. He had to learn how to be a family man. He had to learn how to interact with his father. And through that, he found an extraordinary amount of growth. So Ram Das for me is one of the most spiritual men I've ever come across. And he saw the value in coming back to the human experience as well. So the reason I say that is because I believe we co-create with the universe. So when I say that I surrender to the universe, I still do my bit in the human plane. So I trust the universe is there supporting me. It's an all-loving universe. It's constantly expanding. And if I lean into it and if I trust it, it will continue to show me the path towards my higher self. On the other hand, I'm still a human. I'm having a human experience at the same time. And I've got, you know, friends that are challenging. I've got a business that pushes me. You know, I've got parents that are getting older and challenges. You know, so I have these human experiences I'm going through as well. So the way I look at it is the universe does its part. It shows me the way. And then for me as a human, I keep taking action and I keep walking forward and I keep doing what I have to do to walk my path. And in that, we work in unison. I don't completely give myself over to God or the universe. And I don't completely think that it's all up to me and that I have to do everything and that if it's to be, it's up to me. This is a co-creation between the two of us. And when I'm in that space, I'm the most powerful. My life works. <sighs> this deep, deep stuff. I don't think I've ever shared that level of that before. Uh, Tokyo, I'm curious if I use the word comprehension and understanding when talking about spirituality. Good question. I don't know. Ben, love it so far. How do you personally collaborate with the universe? I think I answered that question just then, right? So I do my part. I trust the universe. I listen for the cues. I trust that everybody, uh, everything that's happening to me is for my highest gain. So I'm trusting the universe. I'm listening for it. I pray every morning. And the prayer I say is, dear universe, bless me on this day and expand my territory. Guide me with your hand and keep me from evil. And so I'm praying to this higher power or really I'm praying to my higher self. I'm praying to the ideal version of me. And I'm, I'm saying, you know, bless me on this day, look after me, expand my territory, allow me to have a greater impact, make a difference, guide me with your hand, show me the path and keep me from evil. So I keep moving on in the human plane and I'm also listening and being present for signs from the universe that I'm on the right path. Toki said, I'm also curious about the bigness and how that relates to it being out there versus inside versus neither in nor out. That's a good question. I mean, you're kind of asking tough questions that feel like a little bit beyond <laughs> where I'm at right now. Uh, you know, you're right, because some people will say that God or the universe, or we are God, you know, each of us individually are God, and we, uh, God exists in all of us. And our ability to connect with ourselves or the God within us or see the God and the universe and other people, that's how we connect to our spirituality versus something that's out there in more of a... Uh, know, traditional, God, something external. So I don't know, I, I, I oscillate between those two, Toku. Like uh, to me, I relate to it as something invisible that guides me and supports me. 
and at times I've been connected to the universe, universe or the God within me, but it's a little less present. It's a little less present in this moment. And that's the truth. And I'd love to know you, Tokyo. Like, what do you, how do you relate to this? You're one of the most spiritual people I know. You have a lot of experience in this area. What's your definition of spirituality? Yeah, Holly said she's going to write down that prayer. It's the first time that prayer has made sense to her. Yeah, me too. That's why I use it. Because I'm praying to, you know, at the start of the day, as I go into the world, I'm praying to an ideal. That in an ideal world, this is, this is how I want to work, walk the earth. Blessed, guided, free of evil, surrendered. My brother's there, Jason said, following your nose. And uh, he had a great insight from our friend and a former client of mine who plays this game called Subway Roulette in New York. And Subway Roulette is where he goes and gets on the subway and just goes to any stop and then gets up and starts walking and just follows his nose. And he's spelt nose, K-N-O-W-S. So following your nose is to say following what you know, you know, the knowing inside of you. And so he plays this game called following your nose. And so he gets out, get onto the subway, gets off at any station, walks around and just follows his knowing, follows his intuition, that feeling inside of him. And so following your nose is a, a phrase that Jason is excited about right now. He's uh, saying it there because it relates to the universe and, and spirituality and the knowing inside of you. So let me know your thoughts. That was a lot of me talking. You know, what's coming up for you? What's present for you around this? Toku said spirituality is the practice of the I realizing it's looking at itself while also realizing it can't see itself. Mm. Well, that feels very tricky and confusing to my brain. You know, I think uh, recently spirituality and religion have been mixed up, so it might be worth touching on that briefly. Religion is, in my mind, you know, an organization that takes spirituality and puts a dogma around it, puts a belief system around it, and says you have to do these things and you have to follow this stuff in order to be religious or spiritual. And, you know, the issue comes when none of that can be challenged and like Toku said, in, in organized religion, the spirituality then becomes outside of you and is handed off to this religion or this belief system or this, this dogma. And so that's challenging for me because my experience of spirituality, God, the universe, is that it is very personal and it's my own journey and I'm in touch with it and I feel deeply spiritual and I'm listening all the time and I'm trying to be my highest self and it's not about a set of beliefs or having to go to a building on a Sunday or follow any sets of rules. It's a very personal experience. So I think we have to be careful that spirituality, you know, if we reject religion, we don't throw spirituality with it because they're two very different things. I don't consider myself religious, but I consider myself very spiritual. And to me, they're different things. And I think a lot of people that have rejected religion through things that have happened to them in the church or bad experiences they've had with really uh, dogmatic religious people, is they now feel very hesitant to talk about God or the universal spirituality for that reason. And I think that's sad. And I think there's a room for a lot of those people to come back to their own version of spirituality and whatever that is to them and not be scared of it uh, getting collapsed into religion. Uh, Jason says, yes, being in flow with the universe, I love what you say because you still have to take the steps. Yeah, it's the law of action, right? You know, there was the big uh, book, what was it called, the movie, The Secret, right, which was all about the law of attraction, which I believe in. And to me, the law of attraction just says, you know, for something to be created externally, we first have to think about it. Everything that was created first, 
you know, by man came in thought first. So it's not to say everything we think about manifests, but everything that's manifested will at once thought about. So that's how I relate to the law of attraction is if I'm to create something, I, I first have to see it in my mind, first have to dream it. And what Jason said is you still have to take the steps. So there's another law that wasn't mentioned in you know, The Secret and some of that more popularized stuff around the law of attraction. That's the law of action. We still have to take the steps. We still have to be in action. If you're sitting in your bedroom all day dreaming up a Ferrari, which I feel like The Secret kind of, that's how it showed it a little bit, a Ferrari is not probably going to come to you. We have to be out there in action walking the steps whilst dreaming, whilst trying to create possibility for ourselves, but also taking action, any action, you know, ideally action towards the dream that you're chasing, but any action. The law of action just says, make sure you're constantly doing something. And anybody that's successful will know this. The more action I take, the luckier I seem to get. Uh, Holly agrees about religion. <laughs> Toku's thrown me some, some heavy hitters again. Uh, how can you not be your higher self? How can you not be your lower self? I'm going to just keep throwing Toku cones at you. Yeah, you're lobbing them over. For me, it's really clear when I'm in my higher self and when I'm in my lower self. You know, the more awareness I have, the more I can see those two parts of myself. And that old uh, adage of, you know, the, the wolves, the Cherokee thing about the wolves, you know, which, which wolf do you choose to feed? It's the same for me. Am I feeding my higher self? Am I feeding my lower self? Neither is good, bad, right or wrong. I love both parts of myself. But, you know, I, I really want to choose to feed my higher self through meditation, through prayer, through physical exercise, through the right conversations. And, you know, my lower self, it's really, really simple. I know when I'm binge eating, when I'm drinking too much, when I'm not healthy, when I'm gossiping, when I'm judging people, you know, I feel like shit. Nothing works in my life or very little things really work well in my life. You know, as if I'm my higher self, not only do I feel good, not only am I, do I feel more in tune with the universe and my purpose and more compassionate, more loving and more connected to, to everything. I also feel good and my life works. And that's important to me. I can put that up. I should have done that before. Yeah, I like that one, Toku. Thought is the first act of creation. Next is speech. Next is action. The final act of creation is memory. So, yeah, exactly. So the first thing we do is think. You know, everything starts as a thought. Next is speaking it into the world. The final action, act of creation is memory. So explain the last bit to us because that's, uh, that's a cool piece. Susan, totally agree what you say about religion as doctrines and spirituality as something so big inside oneself it's nearly beyond personal definition. Exactly, and that's the disclaimer I made you know, at the start is spirituality is beyond words. I'm kind of putting words on them, but this is a felt experience, and it's very hard to put words on a felt experience. Jason, don't forget the other important part, holding a vision of what you want as if you already have it. This was missing in the secret as well. Yeah, so again, that's been very powerful for Jason is you know, not having a vision that's out in the future. And I've been guilty of this a lot, where I have this big vision that's out in the future, and I don't, I can't resonate or relate to it in the present moment. It feels like this thing that's always coming. It's always around the corner, and it's always going to be, feel, and look different than the present moment. And also, when we do that, we're then, again, we're operating from this place of not already having the thing. So it's easy to slip into, oh, I've got this big vision, and when I'll have that vision, then I'll be enough. Then I'll be happy. Then I can relax then I will have proved myself. So we have to be careful that when we're talking about our vision or that when we're creating something, it's not coming from a place of lack and it's not being created way off into the future so that it's completely removed from the present moment. And so what Jason's alluding to is hold the vision as if you already have it. 
So speak it into the world and start uh, creating the way of being as if you had it in this moment. What would that look like? If I want to be a millionaire, how would I have to be? How, how, how do I have to be in this moment to be a millionaire? You know, what, what does it feel like? What are the action steps that they take? So that's a great point, Chase. Thank you. Toki, coming back, we create what we remember we can choose. We create what we remember we can choose to remember and recalls what felt good, what was possible, or what pisses us off. We live mostly in stories about what has happened to us and what that means about us and the world. Hmm. Thank you for sharing that. Oh, I'm curious, what's a story you still surprise you still surprise you tell yourself? Oh, that's a really good question. I mean, there's probably a ton of those. What's a story I'm still surprised I tell myself? Here's one that pops up for me all the time that <laughs> is so funny. Uh, and it's the story that I don't belong. I don't belong anywhere, that I'm alone and I, I don't belong. And, you know, very quickly, it, it comes from a number of places. You know, I was a, my dad had a previous marriage, so I had half brothers and sisters, but I was the only child from the second marriage, so I felt like separate there. Then I had my mum was Canadian, so I had a whole family in Canada that was, you know, that I was kind of separate from. Uh, I felt I didn't belong there fully. Then uh, I was at an all-boys school, but I was gay. You know, so I felt like I didn't belong there. And I'm just constantly looking for evidence that I don't belong. And, I mean, try getting into a relationship when you don't belong, when you have a story that you don't belong. Try belonging even as a couple, you know, with that story. And it's challenging. It's a challenging, disempowering story to carry around. And the funny thing is when I do the work on that story, I can equally make the case that I belong everywhere. That there's nowhere I don't belong. I'm incredibly personal. I fit in. I connect with almost anybody. So I could make the case that I belong anywhere just as easily. But if I'm not careful, I can slide really quickly into that story of not belonging. And I have to watch that. Holly said, my last step of journaling every day is quantum connection. I write as if it had happened. I'm a total gratitude. Beautiful. You know, these are all the, the action steps to align with the universe, the higher self, whatever you're aiming for. Cool. We're going to shift the energy a little bit. Um, and thank you for having that conversation because that's, you know, this is really important to me and it's something I've never shared before and I maybe didn't share it that clearly now, but I'm glad that you guys are here to have the conversation with me and I'm glad that you've allowed me to have this space to talk about it and I hope you get something out of it. I hope we can talk about it again because it was fun. So talked about limiting beliefs. I've discovered that was a good one around not belonging. Being honest with oneself, how does that hold us back from choosing new pathways? Yeah, so Susan asked that question about being honest with oneself. And how does that hold us back from choosing new pathways? Well, one of the most challenging, vulnerable things we can do is be honest. You know, being authentic or being uh, true to ourselves. They're all cliches, right? But it can be one of the hardest things. You know, one of the most challenging things can be to be truthful. So being honest is often the first step to any work. And we're so good at lying to ourselves. And let me say it in even a different way. We're so good at being adaptable. We're so good at being adaptable. And what that means is you might hear somebody say, oh, man, I, you know, I've been quite down lately. You know, I've been a bit depressed, not that happy. But there's a lot of people that have it a lot worse than me. So I, you know, I'm not going to complain. And so we quickly paper over a truth, right? And we justify and we minimize. And we're very good at that because we're so adaptable. You know, we can adapt and shift and change and fit anywhere. And through that, and a lot of times we can slowly just die inside. So being honest with yourself is one of the 
hardest things and it's also one of the first steps to the work. If we look at that last example, I've been a bit depressed and I'm not happy lately. Cool, well, it doesn't matter if people have got it better or worse around the world. It really doesn't matter. Your experience in this moment is one of depression and sadness. That's your truth. So sitting with that and being honest about that is the first step and one of the hardest things to do in a relationship, right? Hard to be honest to yourself. You know, if something's not working or if uh, so many repercussions to that truth, you know, if I'm not happy, if our sex life isn't good, if uh, there's something in our values that, you know, I know deep down doesn't really line up. Well, if I acknowledge that as being the truth, wow, there's so many repercussions to that. Might mean we break up, might mean that, you know, uh, my kids don't, you know, have parents that are together. So there's all these repercussions. So, you know, being honest is hard. Having said that, that's where all the work starts. So a lot of times when I'm working with clients, the first thing is we just want to get the truth and I'm creating a safe place for them where we don't have to do anything with that truth, right? There doesn't have to be any repercussions in this moment, but let's get to the place where we can just speak the truth as you feel it and as you know it in this moment. And once we've acknowledged that truth, then at some point we can look at the possibility that things can be different. So the second part of your, your question, Susan, is how does not being honest with yourself hold us back from choosing new pathways? Well, until we're honest, we can't choose a new pathway. It's only that we, when we get radically honest with ourselves that we can start actually creating new possibilities. I hope that answers your question. Toku, uh, do you see a difference to be unfiltered or raw and being clean and responsible in the practice of honesty? How do you practice that? That's a really good question. And I've learned this one the hard way, unfortunately. So one of, at my essence, one of my essences is authenticity. So I value authenticity as my number one value. And hopefully you feel that from me. And so a lot of the times I can't lie. I can't be inauthentic. I can't, I can't hide what I'm feeling or thinking. And in the past, I've just told the truth regardless of what impact it has to anybody else. And that's hurt people. So my honesty and my truth has hurt people. So there's two ways you can go with that. You can go, well, one, it's the truth. And if they get hurt, that's their thing. <laughs> or you can look at it and you can say, as Toku said, being clean and responsible in the practice of honesty. So I've moved it more into that probably in the last year of going, I'm going to be as honest, authentic, and truthful as I can, and I'm going to take responsibility for how that lands with people. And that might mean slowing things down a little bit. That might mean drip feeding the truth. Uh, that might mean, I'm going to go so far as to say that might mean not telling the truth in some points if you believe that that's going to be hurtful or painful or may cause more harm, the truth may cause more harm than keeping it to yourself. So that's a dance. I don't have a rule around that. But I have awareness now that being authentic and true all the time and being irresponsible can create a lot of mess. And I don't, I'm comfortable with mess, but I also want to take responsibility for cleaning it up. Jason said, I bring awareness to when I'm stopped. When I go to do or say something but don't because I'm scared of saying or doing something wrong, then I just do it because that feeling is my indicator to act regardless. Absolutely. Vulnerability. Toku said, start being honest about where you're not being honest. And is authenticity something you discover or create? Oh, Toku, you're just like, this is like sparring in your language. You're sparring with me with a couple of these big hitters. And I love it. 
I appreciate it. I love you. It's probably and. It's probably not something you discover, you know, or create. It's probably something you discover and create. You know, if you think about it, it's pretty obvious where my authenticity came from. I was gay. And so I got to a point where in order to just have my life work, I had to be authentic about a massive part of me. And so, uh, you know, I, yeah, you know, again, I use that phrase because it's so powerful for me about my life working. It's not about authenticity being a superior way of being or being great or being uh, better than not being authentic. To me, authenticity allows my life to work. You know, there's very little in my life that I'm not authentic about. So I don't carry around the weight of having to hide or lie or hide behind stories or pretend that, you know, things are working or, you know, so I guess it's a practice, you know, being authentic and being truthful to yourself is a practice and it's a value to me. So it's almost something I can't not do. To me, real leadership includes both being with the mess and cleaning it up and being with the mess that will not be cleaned up. Mm, I like that. I like that. Because you can also drift in when you create a mess, you can also drift into having to uh, play the nice guy, right? To like pick uh, pick up the pieces just to make everybody feel good. You don't like the fact that somebody doesn't like you or you have to fix everything. And so oftentimes dropping the truth, knowing that it will create some mess, which the truth often does, and not having to fix all of that. So there's a difference in cleaning up and being clean on your side and making sure that you've led in that regard. And also not drifting into this nice guy syndrome of having to fix everything and make everybody feel good all the time just to avoid you having to feel shitty or avoid feeling like there's mess and conflict out there. And Toki said in Zen, they call it Dharma combat. Two teachers meet on the road and test another's realization to learn and deepen. I love it. I wish we could do more of this. I hope you come and challenge me more often because this was fun. It gave me a lot to think about. So a couple of minutes left and... Yeah, if you guys have got any feedback before we close out, might have time for one last question. What do I want to pick? Or maybe we could just hang out and chat a little bit. You know, I said to you at the start of the call, you know, we talked a lot about mission in my community, you know, with all my uh, community members yesterday, and it was powerful. And, you know, I talked about to those guys, I gave them permission to have their mission be messy because, you know, when we're up in our head, we want this mission to be this nice catchphrase this little slogan that we put out there and it impresses everybody and we feel good and look at my mission but my mission is not like that it's messy you know it's all over the place I kind of trying to help people over here and I'm trying to do this with my family over here and I'm trying to live a great life and you know it's all kind of I'm trying to be on mission but I couldn't put it into a nice little sentence but one thing I know for sure is being with you guys and sharing myself and being authentic and having these conversations is I feel on mission and so I just want to say thank you again for hanging out with me, for commenting, for giving me a place to share and, uh, you know, letting me, on, letting me be on my mission and, you know, helping to share some of these concepts and, you know, share myself authentically, be my higher self and hopefully uh, impact you guys in some way as well. So that's all. See you guys next week. Thanks for hanging out. And, uh, yeah, as always, share this around. Uh, send it to somebody if you think they'd appreciate it. Uh, give it a like. Leave a comment if you're watching uh, in the post video. And I love you guys. I hope you have a great week. That 
was The Nathan Seward Show, inspiring you to live an extraordinary life.